Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Gavin Ralston and Phil Chandler. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much and welcome to this week's call, whether you're listening live or through the new podcast format. Uh, it's good to have Phil Chandler from the multi-asset team uh, with us this week, as, as, as you can imagine, a great deal to talk about. Uh, and I guess the starting point is that the, the narrative that we've been through in these calls has been pretty consistent in recent months. We've talked about the relatively strong showing of U.S. equities, the strength of the dollar, uh, problems for emerging market stocks and emerging markets currencies, especially China, uh, the fact that bond yields have risen uh, in the U.S., but not pushed significantly above 3%. Well, all that's changed in the last week. Uh, the trigger for the negative market action we've seen was that bond yields reached um, as high as 3.25%, although they have since fallen back with a bit of a flight to quality to more like 3.17. This move has challenged the, the valuation basis of U.S. stocks, which have fallen led by the, the tech sectors. So what this means is that since the start of this month, since the start of October, the S&P is down about 5% and has lost most of its gains since the beginning of the year. Other equity markets, however, have fared worse than the US, which is often the case in a sharp downturn, and most emerging and European markets would now be down between 6 and 9% uh, over the month. To put it in, in individual stock terms, two names we've talked about, particularly with the equity teams, have been Alphabet and Amazon. They're now about 12% off the highs they reached in August. Uh, against all this um, uh, frenetic market activity, there has been some fundamental news. There was a slightly weaker US CPI number, slightly weaker than expected. We've also seen the start of the third quarter earnings season, so far mainly the banks, They've been reporting mainly better than expected numbers, reflecting the benefits of higher interest rates. Um, interestingly, though, even those banks who've reported good numbers, like Citi and Bank of America, have seen their stock prices falling after the announcement. So, Phil, um, great timing for a conversation on the multi-asset view of the world. And, and maybe the place to start is that there was a, a meeting of, of the GAC, the Global Asset Allocation Committee, last week. Can you talk through the discussions that went on then? Of course. So there were no material changes to our views last week, even with the volatility which we saw. Ultimately, we're still looking for something of an upward convergence of rest of world growth going up towards U.S. levels, as opposed to a downward convergence of the U.S. slowing to the slower rate we've seen in the rest of the world so far. I don't want to give the impression that we're unambiguously bullish. Uh, I think that masked by the political noise we've had over the last six to nine months, there has been a deterioration in the fundamentals, uh, partly from trade tensions and the impact that has upon growth, but also, as you said, in terms of the impact of rising yields and tightening liquidity impinging upon equity valuations. Today, growth looks reasonably okay, and therefore we want to maintain the growth exposures that we have. Plus, I think also that if we look around the world, some of those different or typical hedges that we see, such as government bonds, uh, some of the defensive currencies such as the yen are looking more attractive after the sell-offs which they've had, and therefore we feel able to maintain the growth exposures we have because we can start to add some of those hedges over time if you see risks. Mm. But I think that's quite an important point. There's a lot of commentators 
have reacted to market volatility by saying it's the end of the bull market, things have changed. But your position is, is, is much more reserved than that in terms of the, the, the short-term outlook. Very much so. We, we have to accept we're obviously getting much later into this cycle. Uh, you are seeing a tightening of liquidity conditions around the world, particularly in the US. Uh, if you think about um, typical late cycle events happening in markets and corporates, there are some warning signs there, but we, are, we do not think that we are there yet. We do not think that the end of the cycle is imminent. Uh, you can look, for example, at key forecasts uh, showing growth continuing this year and next, potentially a small slowdown in Q4 of this year, but ultimately growth continuing for now, not end of cycle. And, and what would the signals be that would change your view that the end of the cycle is closer? I and mean, what are the triggers that would produce a more negative positioning? Well, we've said some, for some time now that three is a magic number. Three uh, percent on global growth, three percent on uh, bond yields, so the US 10-year, which, we, which, which we've reached. So if you think about the growth side, at the moment, the view has really, there's been a small sort of deterioration in that growth outlook as a result of trade wars. Uh, that's you know sort of brought down Keith's forecast by a tenth or two tenths of a percent for the next year or so, um, but ultimately we are still around about that three percent growth number. If we were to start seeing growth moving down from here, you know, looking at the surveys for example and other things, it seemed okay today. But if we saw growth slowing, that could potentially be a problem. The other three percent area is in terms of bond yields, and the reason why we think that three percent is an important number is if you look at equity valuations. You look at valuations relative to bond yields, it's around about this level of US 10-year yields that you start to see exercises look more expensive versus history. We're talking one standard deviation. So whilst it's expensive, not dramatically so. And I think it's a reasonably linear function from here that as bond yields continue to rise, equities would start to look more expensive as opposed to a sudden sort of you know, drop off a precipice. Mm. So I think that we can see bond yields rise further without having disastrous impacts upon equities, but really the critical thing is the speed and the timing of it. If you think about it, at the beginning of this year, you had much stronger growth around the world. You had quite a substantial move in bond yields very quickly, and that spooked the equity market. You've had a big move again this time, and I think one of the things that's been different is that in the past, the market has really focused upon 3% the terminal level for the Fed to get to. Mm. And that's why the long end of the curve has been pinned to that 3% level. And this time, you've seen a move upwards in US 30-year yields. And it's really partly to do with discussions at the Fed around the neutral rate, our start. Uh, Jerome Powell's view that it's an academic concept and maybe it shouldn't be focused on as much now as it was back then. Um, I thought, saw someone had a very good phrase, which is that from a distance, neutral rate may have looked like a very sh uh, sort of shining, bright point of light. Mm -hmm. But as you get closer to it, you realize it's a much blurrier concept, less useful, and therefore power wants people to look out the window. So bond yields are an important driver for equity markets, but it's not a case of once you go above three, that's it, end of world. Yeah. Okay. And, and throughout this year, uh, in terms of the positioning within risk assets, you've been relatively positive on the U.S. on the one hand and emerging markets on the other, a sort of barbell approach. Um, we were talking earlier and you were saying that you're shifting away from those two positions to some extent. Yes, yeah, so I think that's the big change we did make at the Global Asset Allocation Committee last week. So moving from that barbell of U.S. and EM towards a more sort of diversified DM approach. 
So reducing both US and EM and selling it into, in particular, Europe, but to a lesser extent, Japan as well. Mm-hmm. And the view there is it's not that we don't like emerging markets. We think that valuations are still very attractive. But ultimately, there are cyclical headwinds, which we don't see going away anytime soon. And the particular part there is the dollar, which remains a problem. In this world where, whilst we expect some upward convergence of growth, nonetheless, today, the Fed is the only, only major central bank that's hiking rates. That sort of underpins the dollar, and that strong dollar story just doesn't work for emerging markets. Yeah. But as against that, there have been some signs that the specific problems that have dogged emerging markets are being addressed, and we've seen considerable strength in the Brazilian rail, we've seen some signs that the Turkish authorities are addressing their problems. So some of the fundamentals are improving, notwithstanding yes, the agreed. dollar strength. Agreed, and they're quite specific. So if you think mm-hmm. the Brazilian side is really around the election, um, and the hope there for you know, um, the second round to go to the market wants, uh, the Turkish side, you know, the return of the pastor to the U.S., the hope for some sort of thawing in those Turkish-U.S. relations. Um, but nonetheless, that's sort of big picture issue where as liquidity is tightened around the world, it's exposed the most fragile emerging markets. That part could potentially still remain in this environment where the Fed is the only major central bank hiking. Now, we expect that to change next year. If we look at Keith's forecast, or that's forecast in terms of the ECB starting to hike rates, that starts to change the picture. But for today... It's just the Fed in town. So t- tell us more about the view on Europe, because uh, a natural uh, starting point in Europe would be that growth is weak. There are lots of political issues. You've got this big problem out there with the Italian budget, um, yet you're prepared to put mon- more money into Europe. And I completely agree with that. I think there are a lot of problems within Europe, exactly as you mentioned, in terms of weak growth, in terms of problems with the Italian budget. But at the same time, I think these are things that we know about. These are things I think are in the price to a certain extent now. So in the same way that valuations are attractive in emerging markets, I think they're also attractive in Europe. I think there's a cyclical link between EM and Europe in terms of if you were to see an improvement in global growth, yes, we think of emerging markets as being the obvious play there and the beat that they have to global growth. There's very strong trade links between Europe and EM and very strong trade links between Europe and the rest of the world. I think Europe can benefit from any cyclical uplift which we see there. And if you look at um, indicators of sentiment, of positioning, they are pretty poor in Europe today. I think that Europe is under-owned in the global investor community. And so that's why I think that it's largely in the price today. It's not saying to be plain sailing. I think we need to look for hedges. Mm -hmm. So, for example, whilst we've been positioning for improvement in areas of Europe, we've also done things such as uh, sell the euro as a hedge. So it's not a case of a one-way trade here. But you, you now have a position in Italian bonds, which is a relatively recent addition to the portfolios. So that was something which we added a month ago. Yeah. Uh, I think that really the point here is that, yes, there are problems in Italy. I think there are definitely long-term problems for Italian debt dynamics. Uh, you know, Italy has the second worst budget or sort of debt GDP in the Eurozone after Greece. And it is a bit of a tightrope that with the changes which we're seeing, if you were to see further budget loosening, you would be on a path for continued uh, deterioration of Italian debt dynamics. But nonetheless, a lot is in the price. We've had this significant sell-off. Uh, Italian BTPs in the 10-year are now trading 300 basis points over German bonds. That's a very good pickup in a, mm-hmm. an economy where yields are very low. You get 50 basis points on a 10-year bond or 3.5% on a 10-year Italian government bond. You know, very attractive relative to corporate bonds, and therefore we think that can help to 
you know, reduce the amount that yields can sell off further in Italy mm. offers very good carry. Yeah. Let's move on to another subject we've tra- talked about frequently, which is the, the trade war between the US and China in particular. Do, do you think the consequences of the trade war are now priced in? I think there's certainly most of the news today is out in the open uh, in terms of speeches by various different uh, U.S. administration officials, by Trump himself, his tweets. I think that most people are on board with the idea that, you know, in addition to the 50 billion tariffs, you have on the 200 billion at 10%. They go to 25% at the beginning of next year. So by the beginning of next year, the U.S. will be imposing tariffs on a quarter of a trillion dollars of Chinese imports at a 25% level. I don't think anyone will be surprised when that comes through. Is it fully in the price? Maybe not entirely, but I think a lot of that is discounted now. Mm-hmm. I think the real question, therefore, is how the US midterm elections go, whether the Democrats do take the House of Representatives. My presumption is they don't take the Senate, but the numbers today say they take the House of Representatives. How does Trump react to that? and the impact that that has upon trade policy. Certainly, I think that on the Chinese side, their negotiators have been sitting back and was taking a bit of a pause, and there's a realisation that ahead of the midterms, they're unlikely to have much success, Mm. that Trump really isn't incentivised to do a deal with the Chinese because he would rather bash China on the campaign trail. Mm. And so far, the way markets have reacted to the trade war have seemed to create the view that if there is a trade war and it gets worse, the U.S. will win it. So U.S. assets, at least until a week ago, have performed much better than Chinese assets. Do you think that that dichotomy will persist if things do deteriorate again after the midterms? I think there are a number of parts to that. On the one hand, there's obviously that clear on sort of re-onshoring of capacity or the hope for it. I'm not sure how much of an impact that will have upon the actual U.S. economy itself. Hmm. Certainly in terms of a labour market and a wage impact, because what we've seen anecdotally is where people have been onshoring back to the US, it's tended to be in more uh, automated areas. So if you think about it, you move capacity from uh, US labour to EM labour, potentially you now bring it back to US capital. So you don't get a big pickup in employment growth or wages in the US. It is, does have impacts in terms of the corporate side, uh, in terms of margin impact of tariffs. Um, so there's an interesting sort of area there. And I mentioned in, at the beginning, the perhaps uh, concealed by the noise of market action, that there was a pretty reassuring U.S. CPI number last week's inflation not picking up as fast as markets expected. Doesn't that start to question the Fed's very um, candid commitment to raising interest rates? Well, in terms of that CPI number itself, uh, it was the core CPI number which missed. It missed by two-tenths of a percent. And roughly half of that was changes on the housing market side, and half of it was in second-hand car prices. And you tend to find that that latter part is a volatile number. Historically, it hasn't persisted, although I would note in the same way that here in the UK, we've had a lot of uh, new car purchases financed, uh, it had the same thing in the US, so potentially there's a glut there, so it's something for us to watch. Um, but I think there's one month number, uh, we're not out of the woods yet in terms of inflation not that we were saying we would need a dramatic spike anyway. I think that the real thing for the Fed is that when rates were at zero, it was pretty clear that they were very low in the economy that was growing, and they wanted to normalise rates. Mm. Where they get to is really going to be a function of 
the data that's coming out now, if you think of the way that Jerome Powell has reframed the argument away from a pure neutral level to more of a data watching setup. So certainly if inflation starts to cool off, I think that reduces the hurdle for them to stop at some point next year. Um, but ultimately, I think the Fed are you know, still in this mindset they want to bring rates up to a sensible level. Yeah. At least today, they've now got rates up to a level roughly consistent with inflation. Mm-hmm. So real rates aren't negative in the US today as they were before. Still are obviously around the world. And Keith published a note last week which was consistent with that view that there were some one-offs which don't change his view, which has been pretty steady for the last uh, nine or 12 months, that inflation was going to be higher um, progressively in the US because of the strength of the labor market in particular. Exactly. You are seeing wages going up around the US. They're not shooting up, um, but wages are slowly grinding higher across the US and also in other markets as well. And so that's why Keith has this view that core inflation is going to continue ticking higher. There are clearly some um, sort of energy oil price impacts from that. They really hit the headline number, but they also feed through to core numbers in a number of different areas. Um, so if oil prices were to stabilize from here, that starts to drop out the headline numbers and partially out of core. So I think Keith has a potential little softening towards the end of next year. Uh, but ultimately, that view that core inflation is is moving higher, but not dramatically so. And within the equity markets, are you making any shifts in the balance between growth or quality on the one hand and value stocks on the other? Not significantly. I think one of the things to say is that um, as a result of the global multi-factor equity fund, um, which has now been running for uh, 18 months or so, um, I suspect that we will probably use a single factor fund slightly less that the core holding for many of our portfolios is moving towards the global multi-factor fund uh, as opposed to a combination of the single factors and therefore will be less active on that side going forwards. But if you think about the moves we have here, moving from that barbell of US and EM into more diversified DM, so some more Europe, maybe some more Japan, then the US is a very strong quality market. Therefore, reducing the US is the margin reducing quality. Um, having allocated more to GMFV a couple of months ago, we have some portfolios selling some quality holdings today, almost a way of you know, part funding that. Uh, so, at the margin, a small reduction on that quality side. Okay. But it's not a sort of a huge, strong view that we have today. Yeah. Uh, last question. Uh, those of us in the UK have been obsessing about Brexit for two and a quarter years now. Again, last week, lots of political noise as we get closer to a deal. Does it really matter to a global multi-asset manager? Well, the one thing to say there is you said closer to a deal. I mean, one hopes we are closer to a deal, although it's not clear whether that's the case or not. Um, when, so the economics team produce um, a range of forecasts of different risk scenarios every month, every quarter. And before the Brexit vote, we wanted to put a scenario in of Brexit impacting global growth and markets. And when they ran the numbers, uh, we were all rather disappointed to discover that the UK is now a much smaller country than some of us think, and our impact upon the world is nowhere near what it used to be 150 years ago. So the direct impact of Brexit is relatively small. Really where it matters is if you have a propagation through financial markets, in particular through the banking system in Europe, if something disastrous was to happen there in terms of the severing of ties uh, between Europe and the UK. That's not something which we focus on, something we've, uh, we've, that we uh, predict, 
but it is potentially a, a very, very, very far left tail risk. Other than that, the impact of Brexit is relatively minor. Hmm. Um, well, I guess we have been struggling for over 100 years with the realisation the UK is not as important as it used to be. And I think we probably have to further to go there. Um, so um, we're out of time for this week, um, but just, just to pick up a couple of the key points that Phil made. Um, one was that notwithstanding uh, what seems like a pretty volatile market environment with some quite sharp falls in equity markets, um, the multi-asset team have not changed their uh, weighting towards risk assets. Uh, Phil doesn't see any deterioration uh, in the fundamentals that would cause that change to be made. Growth looks intact, although, as we've commented, bond yields have now gone more decisively through 3%. So the end of the cycle is not imminent, uh, nor are equities dramatically expensive. They're obviously a little bit more expensive relative to bonds than they were, but not sufficient to change a position uh, between risk and uh, risk-free assets. So that's all we have time for this week. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you very much, Phil, for your comments. Thank you very much. This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your line.